This is Circulating Ideas, episode 204. My name is Steve Thomas, and my guests today are Marie Benedict and Victoria Christopher Murray. They are the authors of the new book, The Personal Librarian. This episode is brought to you with support from Synthetics Unbound and from listeners just like you. Find out how you can help support the show by going to circulatingideas.com support. And be sure to sign up for the Circulating Ideas newsletter. You can find the link in today's show notes. Today's show is brought to you by Synthetics Unbound from ProQuest and Library Thing. Synthetics Unbound helps public and academic libraries enrich their catalogs and discovery systems with high-interest elements, including cover images, summaries, author profiles, similar books, reviews, and more. Synthetics Unbound encourages, one of my favorite words, serendipitous discovery and higher collection usage, and was awarded Platinum Distinction in the Library Works 2021 Modern Library Awards. To learn more about Syndetics Unbound, visit Syndetics.com. While there, be sure to visit the Syndetics Unbound blog for news and analysis, including a breakdown of libraries' top titles and other stories of interest to the library community. Again, that's Syndetics.com, S-Y-N-D-E-T-I-C-S.com, to learn more about today's sponsor, Syndetics Unbound. Marie, Victoria, welcome to the show. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. We're excited to talk about the personal librarian. So this is a library podcast. So I wanted to start off with just asking about what's been your experience with libraries, either as a kid or now as an adult doing research. Mm -hmm. Uh, How have you been interacting with libraries throughout your life? So my first earliest memories are of being in a library. I got my library card when I was seven years old and it was the greatest. It had my name on it. I no longer (laughs) had to go through my mom, even though she had to drive me. I didn't know how to get there. And every week, every Tuesday, either my mom or dad would take us to the library. I will never forget Mm -hmm. that. I was determined to read every book from A to Z in the children's section. And that's where my love for books and writing began. I love that. Um, I was also, you know, like a specter in the library that wouldn't leave from when I was a young kid. Like Victoria, I was a really young, precocious reader, um, always had my nose buried in a book. And it's hard to keep kids like that in reading, you know, in books. I grew up in Pittsburgh where I've returned to now. And we had a wonderful children's librarian in our local library who uh, really helped my mom out to find books that were age appropriate, but also kind of level appropriate. And she kept me in books for most of my childhood. So your book, The Personal Librarian, tells the story of a different kind of librarian. Yeah. <laughs> this is J.P. Morgan's personal librarian, Belle DaCosta Green who the big twist, I guess, is that she's black, but is she is passing for white. How did you first come across Belle's story and what made you want to write about her when you heard about her? It started for me years ago. I was a uh, New York City lawyer. I was a commercial litigator for a long time. And I don't want to say disgruntled, but maybe it wasn't quite the right fit. And I knew it. And um, I would, you know, take little field trips to for myself to kind of envision another life. And the Morgan Library was one of those places for me. People who maybe who haven't had the opportunity to go there. It is just a stunning place. The original building is really four main huge multi-story rooms. J.P. Morgan's study, the librarian's office, and of course the library itself. And it houses and has always housed 
a world-class collection of rare and priceless manuscripts. I used to go there to escape and, um, I was there, gosh, I don't want to, it was a long time ago, over 15 years. We'll go maybe 20, could be longer. <laughs> and a docent happened to mention Belle de Costa Green. She mentioned that there was this, you know, young librarian who was really JP Morgan's right-hand person, not just collecting and organizing books, but curating the collection, acquiring, representing, negotiating, and so much more to him personally. And I didn't know at that time about her secret, but I thought it was just astonishing that a woman at that time period held such power because she really did grow up to become an extremely powerful and influential person in the, in the art and rare book world. And so she kind of made her way onto my list. I write books about unknown historical women. And I knew though, that I really needed and wanted to have a partner in the story. And with Belle is a black woman who's passing as white. And I knew she deserved to have a black woman tell her story as well. And it wasn't until I read Victoria's fantastic book, which I'm sure is in many of your libraries, Stands Your Ground, which looks at the really hard issue of the shooting of young Black men by police officers, the perspective of the boy's mother, and also the wife of the white police officer, really different look from the women's point of view of this issue. I really had hoped I found my partner in that. So that's sort of a long-winded explanation of how I came to the story, but that's not how we came to write the book. There's a lot more to that. Yeah, Victoria, yeah. a lot of your work is more contemporary. Um, Much more so, contemporary. Yeah, so what was it about sort of Marie's pitch or just Belle's story that wanted you to get involved? It was Marie's pitch. My agent sent me a copy of The Other Einstein, which I loved. But when I was reading it, I just knew that wasn't for I couldn't write like that. I couldn't write the detail of the history and drawing out the characters that way. And I just wasn't sure if that was for me. But after reading through the treatment, it took me a couple of months to say, okay, let me speak with Marie. And once we spoke, after two minutes, I was absolutely sure I could do it because it was a collaboration. So I didn't have to know all of the history. I didn't have to know how to do that. I felt very comfortable immediately that I could do this with Marie and she would lift me up with any of the weaknesses I had for writing historical fiction. And what was so great is that I learned it all. I started learning how to use the language and researching. So it became something that was really a lot of fun for me. You know, I had never collaborated before. So for me, the way our strengths and weaknesses just really meshed really beautifully was such a gift in this process. And just the way in which our conversations shaped the novel as well. It was really I've said it before, but the the gift for me in writing this book, obviously, of course, is having Belle's story known because she is important, not just for the Morgan Library itself, but the legacy she left for libraries in general. But the gift for me is my friendship with Victoria. Victoria, I know you have collaborated in the past. So what is it about collaboration that you love doing? That I love? Oh, I, I love collaborating more than I enjoy writing alone now because I've done six books with Rashonda Tate Billingsley. And what I love about collaborating is you're not in it alone. So with Marie and I on this book, we talked about every chapter, even far more than I had done in past collaborations. We talked through the chapters ahead of time And then depending on whose strength we thought it was, we would write it and then we switched it. 
And so I am so proud of the fact that we wrote every word of this book together. Now, I do believe that you have to have a writing soulmate. I don't think I could just choose any other writer, even if it was a writer that I loved reading. Your personalities have to mesh as Mm -hmm. well. And you have to trust each other. You have to know that anything you're going to change or talk about, or you're going to have to be okay with disagreements. So I can't even think of a disagreement Marie and I Mm -hmm. had, Uh, but you're going to have to be okay with that. And just wanting to explore deeper. That's one of the things I loved about working with Marie. We had a first draft, which was very surface. We didn't know that at the time, No. but then the longer we went on with Bell and through the editing process and as social arrest came up in the country around us, her story got deeper. And obviously during a pandemic, there probably wasn't the time that you were able to get together (laughs) physically to do that. So what kind of technology did you guys use to collaborate? Like you're talking about, you're both working on the text at the same time. Are you doing like a Google Docs kind of thing or what kind of stuff did you use? Well, you're not talking to two of the most tech savvy individuals (laughs) in the world here. Oh, I will say what I personally am super thankful for is Zoom. I mean, it was something that was available previously, you know, prior to the pandemic, but it was something that became so second nature during the pandemic. And Victoria and I made excellent use of it. I mean, we probably connected much more efficiently, effectively, more deeply Once we added Zoom to the equation, you know, previously it was more phone calls and we did meet in person, but, you know, Victoria and I both prior to the pandemic traveled a ton to do events and, um, you know, book, book related activities. So I feel like the technology of Zoom and the fact of the pandemic, which was terrible, but forced us in particular to to kind of settle in one place that actually gave us much more of an opportunity to be in some ways together. When I look back on the pandemic, one of my strongest, you know, memories of that whole time stretch is actually being with Victoria, even though we were never actually physically together. So I think for me, that was probably the best. Victoria, was there some other technology that you definitely loved? (laughs) And she's saying that because we are not very (laughs) technical. It was Zoom every day for hours, not 15 minutes, for hours Mm -hmm. as we wrote it. And you asked if we would use a Google Docs. If we did, you wouldn't Mm -hmm. see this book right now. (laughs) Because one of us would have been able to figure out how to do it. So we did. We had to do some old-fashioned just making sure you deleted the other chapter, you know, when you Mm -hmm. got it, we had to do a lot of that organizing of it, but everything just meshed together. She's my soulmate in in writing. She's my writing soulmate. It just was so easy. People say the book is seamless and that's because it was seamless as we wrote it. That's exactly right. Yeah. I was going to say that just reading it, if you didn't know there were two authors, you wouldn't know that because I mean, it flows so well. Like I have no idea which chapters anybody wrote. (laughs) Well, really there was so much exchange of the chapters, you know, we might start, you know, history is really my jam obviously. And so I might start out in a particular chapter writing the historical section and Victoria might be in love with a certain exchange and we would try that and then switch it, talk it through. And then each of us would kind of add to it. You know, one of my strengths is getting that first draft done. And that's something that Victoria I don't mind saying this for her because she hates Hates it. it. (laughs) And so, you know, I would put those tracks out, hand them to her. And she would say, you know what? We need some emotional tension here, or we need to go deeper here. And that's something that I couldn't see because I was already done. Right. That's her real specialty. That's my jam. Yeah. So it, it 
really so fortunate in our friendship and in our sort of gift of collaboration. So Victoria, you had mentioned the racial discussions that have come up as you were writing this book. Do you feel like that makes this even more so the right time to tell Belle's story? Oh, it is so perfect. Mm -hmm. When Marie describes Belle, sometimes she says she's timely because, you know, we're thinking her story is set in the early 20th century, but everything that she was going through is happening now because the one thing that links these times together is the fight for equality. It has not changed. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I was thinking about the Civil Rights Act of 1875 impacting her life the way it impacted her life. And here just a few years ago, we had the Supreme Court overturn the Voting Rights Act or the major part of it in 2000. Uh, 10, I think so, they did that. And so here we are fighting again for equality. So there was so many parallels Mm -hmm. uh, between Bell's story and Bell's time and today. And because of that, Marie and I had to have so many conversations. There wasn't a conversation about this book that wasn't centered around race. Mm -hmm. And then because of that, then we could talk about our own experiences, mine with living through experiences and Marie having to listen to some of these experiences. And it was just an amazing time that hasn't ended for me because Mm -mm. Marie is still my friend that I can now talk. She is um, the elephant in the room. She's a white friend that I can Mm -hmm. talk honestly about race. And I've never had that before in my life. And when I say honestly, I think we've had honest conversations with other people and other friends, but I'm talking about the little tiny microaggressions that now I don't feel bad texting her. Like, you know, she better text me. And I text her all the, and so I text the same things to Marie that I would have texted to my black friends in the past. But now I text them to her forgetting her color because she gave me such a, safe place to land and to speak about that. Those and that, that for me, I mean, was such a gift that Victoria would trust me to share those things, you know, to share those things, which, you know, are, are hard to talk about, are difficult, that are emotional. And I felt so honored that, that she would share that with me. Yeah, and it's kind of like the pandemic where you don't want to say this was a good thing, but it it, yes. it did bring out a lot of conversations that needed to happen. And exactly, it did it really, it really did. did? And all the social unrest last summer, all around that, there were a lot of conversations that needed to be had, and exactly. there were people that needed to listen. But there were some of us who needed to speak who hadn't spoken before, mm-hmm. because we're as exhausted of it mm-hmm. as well. So some of us need to speak up, and we weren't speaking. Well, I'm glad there's a little more comfort there now to get that. Oh, yeah. Um, Marie out. hears everything. <laughs> and I want to. When she holds back, I'm like pulling it out. <laughs> if she wants to tell me, you know, obviously I I'm, I don't want to tread where it, I, it's not my place to tread. But gosh, if I can serve as in any capacity, I'm honored to do that. Well, uh, the, the racial issues are the, is the big thing, but there are so, some kind of intersectional identity issues in here too, because um, there's issues with her being a woman in that time, because women in that time and today are still yeah. majority in the profession, except in leadership positions. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, anybody who's heading a library, especially back then, it was what, 90 something percent probably were men. And she oh, yeah. even mentions that, I think, when she's doing her interview with Morgan, she's like, well, I'm probably the only woman that you, you ever <laughs> even interviewed for this. Can you talk about that a little bit too? 
Sure. Back then, as I'm sure you probably know, there wasn't a formal library training. There was no formal education in, in library sciences as there is today. It was starting, you know, and there were some individual, but there wasn't a degree specifically. So a lot of the learning was done more in an apprenticeship fashion, you know, on the job. There were classes and Belle availed herself of some of those. Her educational background's a little bit murky, I'm sure intentionally on her part. And so a lot of what she learned, she learned from others. And I think you're right. There were a lot of women in librarian sort of roles, but they would almost never be made head of a particular library. You know, certainly the Princeton University Library, where she got a lot of her training from an excellent, excellent library. It was led by a man. We do talk about that in the book. And I'm certainly JP Morgan wouldn't have interviewed and didn't interview any other women for the role. But there was something about Belle, not just her intellect, her brilliance, her facility and understanding with these manuscripts and books that J.P. Morgan was collecting, there was something sort of indescribable about her that drew him to her. That was sort of, you know, that line between fact and fiction that we had to imagine because we don't actually know what it is. But knowing Belle's reputation, knowing how formidable she really was, he really sensed that in her at a time when that wouldn't have been an attractive quality in other people's perspective. So they were an excellent match in that way. But what's amazing about Belle is that, you know, over the years, her her titles grew, right? She was J.P. Morgan's personal librarian, then Jack Liburn's personal librarian. And as she kind of facilitated the public nature of the Morgan Library, you know, a transition from really a wealthy individual's private collection to a world-class public institution, she also was so innovative in, in the kinds of things she started. When you look back on what she was doing, you know, traveling collections, um, almost like speaker series, ways in which she made the Morgan collection relevant to a variety of libraries and institutions, scholars, the public. She was really, from what I understand, I'm not a library expert, but from what I understand, she was really at the forefront of a lot of that. And some of the things that she really initiated at that time are now standard in a lot of libraries. So, you know, I feel like she had an impact and a footprint beyond just being ultimately the director of the Morgan Library, which was a huge job and accomplishment unto itself, but in terms of her legacy in the library community at large. And, you know, I listened to Marie say all of that, and she did all of that, and she couldn't even vote. Right. Belle could not even vote. Think about that. And she wouldn't have, in most cases, been allowed in the institution that she ran if people knew her secret. You think about the tightrope that she was walking every single day as she wielded this enormous power, this enormous command. It's really astonishing when you think about it, you know, in that perspective. And and some of that tightrope is even within her own personal life in that her father was like a big civil rights leader. And yet her mom was the one that was advocating for them passing for white. There were records about her feelings about that conflict? Or did you guys have to kind of fictionalize and be creative with that part? I think we had to do more fictionalizing there because we just didn't know, but we were able to extrapolate a couple of things. You know, she followed most in her father's footsteps in terms of being a librarian than the other children. So we could just imagine how she had to be a, a daddy's girl and he gave her that love of arts and rare manuscripts. So we had to extrapolate some of that, but I think we got pretty close. Yeah. But it, it is so interesting though, because 
today her father would have been the head of the Black Lives Matter movement, you know? And yet she was able to keep it a secret only because it was the early 20th century and there was no Instagram. Her life would have been very different today. (laughs) Oh my gosh. You know, they did their best to to separate from him because he was so well-known in his time period. You know, he was the first Black graduate of Harvard. He was a professor at the University of South Carolina during its brief period of integration. He was the dean of Howard Law School. He was a lawyer, famous orator, activist for civil rights alongside people that are maybe better known, Frederick Douglass and Booker T. Washington. And they distanced themselves. You know, they changed their name from greener to green, added the DaCosta. And if that link between Belle and her father had been established, that would have been the end of her fiction, which was that she was actually a white woman of Portuguese heritage. And it would have brought them, the whole family would have suffered from Mm -hmm. that. One thing I do want to say about Belle's mother in this, Mm -hmm. because I think it's important to know, I believe that she was ready to stand by her husband or that she had stood by her husband's side. She left DC, the comfortable place to go down to South Carolina. She had never been south of the Mason-Dixie line, but she went with him. And I believe as a woman, she probably supported everything that he was fighting for until she saw that fighting wasn't going to get her what she needed to have. When Marie and I were writing this, it was very important for us, for people to understand that we did not believe she was passing to be white. She was passing to be equal. And that was the only way to achieve it. She herself came from this wonderful, rich culture in um, DC. You know, the Fleet family was part of this really rich community of color that had been free for generations. And, you know, that wasn't something she was, you know, rushing to leave behind. It was society, instead of moving further towards equality, which is kind of what the promise had been when they moved to South Carolina and the Civil Rights Act of 1875 had first started or been enacted, that started to erode over the years. And, you know, she could see very clearly that the kind of equality she hoped for, not just for herself, but her children was not going to happen. And so the situation really forced her hand as a mother, you know, looking out for her children. And And that compromise obviously was not good for the father. It was unacceptable to him basically at at a certain point. And so he left the family. Unacceptable. And because I think that Genevieve saw the color of her skin as an asset to be used mm-hmm. and and Richard T. Greener as the grandson of a slave saw the color of their skin as a mark, the most heinous act or one of the most heinous acts in slavery. Mm-hmm. And so they saw it very differently That's and true. they decided to take separate roads. Yeah. And Victoria always has a great way of putting it, saying that in many ways, Bell never really left that crossroad, that kind of conflict really stayed with Belle, we think, kind of for the rest of her life. And as we were talking about earlier, I mean, identity is a big thing that's being talked about these days, too, of choosing your own identity. And and your identity is defined by you, not from the other people. And she lives in a time period where people didn't have that luxury. You know, your identity was defined by law, was defined by society. But at the end of the day, as Victoria likes to say, she was still a black woman putting her head down on her pillow, right? No matter how she presented herself in the world. And that conflict really, the way we kind of envision Belle, 
would have been a terrible, terrible burden to bear. Well, to wrap up, I just wanted to ask if there was anything in particular in the real life that you had to leave out that Ooh. really stung <laughs> that you yeah, so really many wish things. you could oh my gosh. So many things. Oh my gosh. She, she had a such, like you couldn't make it up. Her life was so, <laughs> you know, glamorous on one hand and conflicted on the other. I mean, she knew everybody who was anybody in the Gilded Age. <laughs> you know, John D. Rockefeller taught her how to drive and she could hang with the Bohemians and suffragettes in the village. But I don't know. Is there one particular thing, Victoria? Well, the one thing I think we, I mean, it it actually ended up on the cutting floor because one of the the biggest sacrifices that Belle made was that she wasn't able to have children. Mm -hmm. She wasn't able to get married and then have children because she was concerned about the tint of her skin. Mm -hmm. Um, And she was the darkest of all the children and she didn't know what would happen. We really believe she made that decision not to have children but she did end up adopting her youngest sister's son. Mm-hmm. So there's a whole story around that because she adopted him, but she was still kind of more focused on her career. And he seemed to have lived such a sad life. And we had put a little bit of him in the book, but it wasn't enough to tell the whole story. Um, so we left that out. And I was sorry when we yeah. had to. It was, but I was sorry because that was another side of Belle that we mm-hmm. didn't get to show but it was necessary to, to leave yeah. That. Yeah. I would have liked to have included that too, Victoria, because even though she herself wasn't able to have children because she really would have risked her identity. And that would of course impacted not just her, but her entire extended family. But she did get some moments of experiencing motherhood. It would have been nice to show that sort of dream fulfilled from a certain perspective, but it didn't work for the particular story in the time period that we were focused on. Right. Well, Marie and Victoria, thank you so much for coming on the show. And thank you for writing such a great book that fills in kind of a history of libraries um, hole that I don't know that a lot of people knew about. Again, it's called The Personal Librarian. So go check it out at your local library. Thank you so much for having us today. Thank Thank you you. for having us. Have a great day. Circulating Ideas is produced in the suburbs of Atlanta. Views expressed on this show do not necessarily reflect those of my place of work or the place of work of guests. For past interviews, visit circulatingideas.com and follow the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, or your podcast app of choice. And help others find the show by leaving a rating or a review. To learn more about this episode's guests, sign up for the Circulating Ideas newsletter. You can find the link in the show notes or on the site. Theme music is by Pamela Klicka and the logo is by Shandy Fry. Thank you for listening and keep circulating your ideas. Thanks again to Synthetics Unbound from ProQuest and Library Thing for sponsoring today's episode. Visit them on the web at synthetics.com.